Hey, this is Lee Snow. I'm the preacher of Orange Springs Road Church of Christ, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for downloading today. I hope it inspires you. I hope it builds your faith. I hope it gives you a perspective to see what God wants to do in your life, and I hope it challenges you to a faithful tomorrow. Springs Road, a pretty bad name in my lifetime, because when I go speak somewhere, they'll say, that wasn't very good. And I'll say, I know, I, I spoke at Warm Springs Road some in college, and that's where I got my, my start and my only experience. So please don't hold it against them. So but I'm sorry for, for what I've done with your name in the community. Now, it's a nice honor to be back here. I spoke some here in college while the church was looking for a preacher, and I was doing the math today, and it had been about 15 years since I spoke here. And that doesn't even seem possible to say something was 15 years ago, but, but here we are. So it's nice to be back tonight, and thank, thank Lee for having me. I want to give you an example and tell me what you think about this. Last week, I told my girls to clean their room. And they're, they're four years old right now, and, and they have a little play area in their room. And I told them, you clean that room. And so I went downstairs, and I gave them ample time. But when I went back upstairs, you know what they had the nerve to say to me? Their room looked awful, just as it did before. They said, Dad, you're going to be so proud of us. We memorized what you said. We know exactly what you said. You said, clean your room. You think I was happy with that? Of course not. But I'm a dad of grace and patience, and so I gave them another opportunity. And I went downstairs, told them, this time you better clean that room. And when I went upstairs the next time, you know what they said? Dad, we have prayed about it. We spent a lot of time praying about cleaning our room. Well, I'm getting kind of furious. I'm, we keep them at home and homeschool. I'm like, what is your mom teaching you during the day? You know. So I give them another chance. I go downstairs, and I come back up to check the room. You know what they've done? They've said, Dad, you're going to be so impressed. We have learned the Greek for clean your room. We know the Greek and the Hebrew for clean your room. Well, at this point, I'm boiling, you know. And I think, fine, I'll give them one more chance. They're four years old, I'll give them four chances. So I go downstairs, give them ample time. I come back up and they've said, Dad, we've called our little friends that are four. We have established these little play dates where we're going to get together and we're going to talk about what we think you meant by clean your room. You're going to be so excited to see what we understand at the end of this, these meetings. And so any parent or grandparent among us that would be okay with that from our children... Of course not. Of course not. We wouldn't let that slide in our house. And I can't help but think that sometimes that's how Jesus must feel with us when we read a scripture, and instead of doing what it says, we think about it, we pray about it, we memorize it, we learn the original language, and we get together and we talk about it and talk about it ad nauseum. Uh, I think Jesus is probably no more pleased with us than we would be with our children in this situation, this scenario that I borrowed And we understand that, and we need to understand that that's how Jesus might feel as well. In James chapter 1 and verse 22, we read something that Jesus had echoed before. Jesus before had said, why call me Lord if you don't do what I say? That would be like saying, who's the boss of this house? And my kids, which I have them trained to say, you are, Dad. Sometimes we have to stop what we're doing, and I have to ask them, who's the boss of this house? Because you're not acting like you know the answer to that question. And so Jesus would say something very similar. Why do you call me Lord if you don't do what I say? And that's basically what James says in chapter 1 and verse 22. He says, be not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word. God is not pleased simply by us listening to what he has to say, even though that's the first step. But we have to be obedient and actually do it. And so before we get into James chapter 5 verses 1 through 6, it will be very helpful for us to have some background information on the book as a whole to kind of understand what James was going through and what his readers were going through. And then we'll better understand chapter 5. So I want to give us maybe three things 
to think about as an introduction. And we'll spend about half our time on, on introducing the text. But these are the three things that I want us to look at and the three things I want us to understand before we look at chapter 5. The first, who wrote James? Second of all, we want to think about what was going on in his world at the time, politically and religiously. And then third, we want to think about who James actually wrote the book to. So the first of these, who wrote the book of James? We, I would love to spend about 20 minutes on this because it's really interesting when you look at all the different verses, but we won't have time to do that. Uh, there are four people by the name of James in the New Testament. One of them, of course, is the most famous of the apostles. If you keep singing through the Song of the Apostles, you'll come to James the Less. We have James, the brother of Jesus, and then Judas, the apostle, his dad was actually named James. And so basically, those are our four choices. Well, by the time we get to the time that the book was written, the apostle has been put to death already, and we know almost nothing about the other two James. So it seems most obvious that it was James, the brother of Jesus. And these are the verses, and I'll just put them up here uh, for you to So maybe make a note if you want to check any out. Of course, we won't go through those. We don't have time to tonight. But the interesting story that you see as you go through these verses makes it seem like it was most likely the brother of Jesus. And one thing that's really interesting is in one of these stories, Jesus has just decided, I don't want to go to a particular area because I have just told them I am God in the flesh. I have said I am, which means I'm God. And those people are kind of worked up because they don't believe that and they want to put me to death. And then in the next chapter, his brother James says, hey, why don't you go down to that area? You see, Jesus' brother was not a believer in him while he was alive, and it seems like he possibly might have been asking Jesus to go into an area that was dangerous. Basically, if you're God, if you're so great, why don't you go to this area and and let him kill you? Why don't you prove it? And so that's the story we see of his faith while Jesus is alive. But you know what? After the resurrection, everything changes for James. James. And we find him in the book of Acts. He's an elder in the church, and he's involved in the leadership of the Jerusalem Christians. Everything changed. Well, well, what changed his outlook from from maybe a jerk, a a non-believer at the very least, to such a leader in the church? Well, the rest changes everything for us as well. Jesus' resurrection, it really changes everything. It makes his claims to deity true and makes us believers, and it's the gospel that saves us. And so this is most likely the writer of the book. One thing that extra-biblical history, that is, historical writers of the time, say about James, the brother of Jesus, is was Jesus the just. And the reason for that is he spent so much of his life, his time, his money, helping the poor. You know, as we read through Acts chapter 2, we see that all these Christians have come, or all these Jews have come to Jerusalem. They become Christians. They stay around to learn and encourage each other. And it doesn't take long. You ever been on vacation somewhere and, and and uh, your stay outruns your money, and it's time to go. you got no more money for a hotel, going out to eat. See, the vacation is over at this point. And so in Jerusalem, we see that the Christians run out of money, but they're staying in the area, and you see men like Barnabas come through and sell stuff so Christians have money. But, but James was a man that had that reputation. He loved the poor, he cared about them, and he helped them. Secular history tells us that he was killed by a man, a governor in the area, that basically wanted to flex his muscles and show that he was in charge. And so he killed James just to say, I'm the boss of this area. There was such an outcry by the community and by the poor in that area that this man was run out of town and he was fired because of what he had done to a community leader, somebody that the community loved. And so if that is who wrote the book of James, it makes sense that he would spend so much time talking about how the rich treat the poor, how the poor treat the rich, and how we should help people. You know, the end of chapter 1 tells us that 
pure religion and undefiled before God is to show up to every service, is to have perfect attendance, is to... No, 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 no. It's not, he says pure and undefiled religion, as important as those things are, is helping those who can't help themselves, helping the widows, helping the orphans, and keeping yourself unspotted from the world. Well, that makes sense because James was a man who was just and he cared about the poor in his life. So this is more than likely who it is that wrote the book. All right, number two. We'll think a little bit about what's going on in the world at this time. Just a few things we'll run through quickly to help you understand the atmosphere in the land at the time. About a hundred years before James wrote, there was a Roman general, Pompey, and he took Judean territory and he cut parts of it out and took it for himself. The people that were living on that land became homeless or they became uh, tenant workers, basically slaves. And so you had a lot of the Judean people that were mad at the government because the government came in and took their land and took their stuff from them. In between that hundred years and when James writes, Herod the Great comes in and he taxes people so much that those that were left with land, several of them can't afford it. And they have to sell it and move away or sell it to somebody and work as slaves. And so think about how the Jews feel in this time. You're taking our land, you're taking our money, you're taxing us, we're becoming your slaves, we're becoming workers for you, we don't have the freedom we used to have. And you remember, this is a privileged people. God gave them the promised land, and now the government's coming in and taking it. So it is not a good political atmosphere at the time. Everybody's emotions are running high, people are really discouraged, and that's the time in which James writes. So there was a lot of resentment between the Jews and their government. And you remember, have you heard the term zealot before? Someone that is, is uh, religiously fired up. And they basically say, look, we're God's chosen people. This is our land, and we're going to run you out. Uh, we're going to do whatever it takes, even if it means being terrorists, even if it means killing you. And so some of the Jews that James was were talking to, they were thinking about life and death things. We're talking about forming an army and marching right into the teeth of the government. And that's some of the people that James was talking about. So some of these larger farm owners who now owned the land, they didn't mess around when you owed them money. There was no, can I get it to you on the next Friday? Can I pay you a little now and later? If you owed the money, they had hit squads they would hire, and they would come around and kill you. And so that's the atmosphere James is writing in. You, the poor do not mess with the rich. There's no win in it. We'll squash that immediately. You'll be killed. And so there was a tension between the landowners, the rich, the poor, and the government. And that was the atmosphere that James was writing in. And so in his book, all of that makes sense because James is going to address these things. He's going to address the pride of the rich. He's going to address how the rich have persecuted people. He's going to address how pay is being withheld by the rich. And he's going to talk to those who are tempted to retaliate with violent acts and with words. You know, in James chapter 1, he tells us, he says, count it as a joy when you fall into trials of various kinds. Now, what kind of crazy person goes through something tough and says, praise God I'm going through this, let me learn from it, let me get something from it? Well, James says, look, we're Christians. We act different, we think different, we approach situations differently. So when we're going through a trial, we don't scream, let me get out of this as soon as put in it. But our, natural, our first reaction should be, God, what do you want me to get from this? How can I grow? And so James is saying, don't be a zealot. Don't take it to the government. That's not how God is going to settle this score. But you be patient. You don't let your mouth run off. You don't let your 
violence runoff. God's got this. He's going to take care of it on his own time and in his own way. And it's not up to you to take God's vengeance into your own hands. And so James responds with a call to wisdom. Just be wise. Be smart. Pray to God for wisdom. You know, if there's anything we should pray for, it should be wisdom. I like that James says, if any of you lack wisdom. Is that, is that a question? None of us lack wisdom. That's like saying if you're hungry, eat. If you're sleepy, go to sleep. Well, we lack wisdom. And the good thing about God is he says, ask for it. And guess what? I'll give it to you. And God gives in such a way that he just gives and gives and gives. And he doesn't make us feel bad about it. And so James says, use wisdom. He says, have faith and patiently endure this trial that you're going through. And so that's what the world looks like when James writes this book. And that's why he writes some of what he writes. And those themes are all over the place in the book of James. And then finally, the third thing is background. Who does James write the book to? And we won't spend a lot of time on this. I'm sure uh, Tony probably covered it when he had verse 1 to kick this off. Uh, But James says that he's writing to the dispersion, to the Jews that are scattered throughout the world. One thing that I think is interesting about that is that James, that name in the New Testament, is the same name you read Jacob in the Old Testament. It's the exact same wording. They're just coming from different languages. And it's almost like the name Jacob, when it was brought over into Greek and then into English, was, was corrupted. Uh, this letter was changed to this, and this was changed to this. So basically, Jacob and James are the same name. So when, when we read Jacob in the Old Testament and we read James, it's almost like when you read Jesus sometimes in the word Joshua, those names can be interchangeable. Same thing with Jacob and James. Those words are the same. But in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob calls his 12 sons together, and he gives them an address. And he says, this is how I want my 12 sons to act. This is what I want you to know before I die, before the promises are carried on through you. And James, in the New Testament, is basically doing the same thing. He's calling together all the nations of Israel, all the Jews that are now Christians, and he's giving them an address similar to Jacob and gave his 12 sons. And so it's interesting that we see someone by the same name doing something similar to those 12 tribes. Now, we won't go through and and look at all of these verses, but these verses would just show us that James is writing not just to Jews, but specifically Jewish Christians. And not just to Jews that are Christians in Jerusalem, but that are already spread throughout the world. You know, if you open up to Acts chapter 2, one of the verses mentioned up here, you can read a long list of cities. And we could read through that, but I wouldn't know how to pronounce them, and that would be embarrassing to me. Uh, the, the, the key is, though, if you're ever pronouncing a name in the Bible and you don't know, just act like you do, because most people don't know either. That's what I do. It works for me pretty well. But when you look at that list, these are the cities that you see drawn from all around the world to come into Jerusalem. And then this next slide will show us even a little bit more detail. So you have people in these cities from all over the world that are highlighted coming to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. So years later, after Pentecost and James is writing his book, it's not like Christians or Jews being scattered through the world is a new thing. You can see Jews are spread throughout the whole world already at the time of Acts 2. So when he's writing to the the dispersion of Jews, it's a real thing and it's been real forever. There's one historian that said you couldn't find a place in the world in Acts 2 that didn't have a Jewish community in it. And so you can see that represented on the map pretty well. But James is writing to Jewish Christians. And in Acts chapter 8 and 11, you'll remember that there is a persecution that drives that nice little community, that nice little hub of Christianity out into the world. And we see God's providence looking back. If Christianity had stayed in Jerusalem, 
I want it to go to the Gentiles because I'm a Gentile and I'm thankful it went to us. And so God uses the, the persecution, that bad thing, to scatter the Jews out into the whole world. So all Christian Jews scattered throughout the world. And then even to us today, because aren't we the spiritual seed of Abraham? So these are our, our three points of background. Who wrote James? Probably Jesus' brother, and we could look into that if we had more time. What's going on in the world at the time? Political upheaval. You think we got it bad today, it was much worse then. Religious zealots, there was a lot going on. Persecution between the rich and the poor, even within Judaism. And then finally, who is James writing to? Well, he's writing to, to Jewish Christians everywhere, and he's writing even to us today. So that'll bring us up to what we're going to talk about in James chapter 5 today, if you want to go ahead and turn there. A quick review, as you do, of the end of chapter 4. It's helpful sometimes when you see a chapter break. You know, of course, we put those there. So sometimes the people that put them there didn't do us any favors. They might put it in in the middle of a thought, in the middle of a sentence. And so I think that's been done to an extent in James chapter 4 to James chapter 5. At the end of chapter 4, as you probably talked about last week, here are some main points that are addressed. First of all, James says, don't talk bad about each other. Look, we got enough enemies out in the world. Is that right? We got no business talking bad about each other. You got a problem with somebody that's here, you need to find a way to get over it. There's enough people out there that are going to tear us down. We got to be playing for the same team. James says, don't tear down the team you're all supposed to be playing for. Remember what's most important. Then James says, don't set yourself up as the judge. You know, people love Matthew 7, right, verse 1, that says, don't judge or you'll be judged. And they say, that's the end of it. Well, we know there's more to it. Yes, we have to call people out if they're sinning. We need to kindly and graciously bring people back to repentance, tell people what the Lord says. But what James is saying is you're not the judge. Now I'm supposed to tell people what's right and what's wrong, and I'm supposed to live that out, but I'm not setting myself up here. And that's what James cautions himself as. There's no head elder. There's no person that decides everything that's right and wrong in the brotherhood. There's nobody that's in charge except Jesus. And sometimes we cross the line of telling people what's right and wrong, and we set ourselves up as the one that's on the throne. And that's what James says you just cannot do. He also says that good plans, righteous plans, include God. You know, that's the idea of if the Lord wills, you know. Should we go around every single thing we say and say, the Lord, if the Lord wills? Well, I'm going to go get something to eat if the Lord wills. I'm going to run to the restroom if the Lord wills. You know, how, how annoying would it be to be around someone that talked like that? That's just not practical. But the mentality should be behind everything that we do and say. It's about more than just vocalizing it, but it's about living like that. Here are my long-term plans if that's God's will for me. And that's what James says. We'll do this and that, but if that's God's will, he may not allow it. Then number four, life is quick. I mean, how many of us have we known that, that have died in a situation we never would have seen it coming? You know, someone dies young. Even some that die old, but life is quick. And sometimes it's quicker than we think it is. And that's what James says about it. You know, I've heard someone say, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. And that's maybe the Jesus is coming back or when our life may be over, and James talks about that. And then finally, and this is what really leads into chapter 5, James says, it is sinful for you to know something you should do and not do it. We're not talking about committing sin as far as, as lust or saying bad language or not keeping your word or stealing. We're not talking about things you're doing. But, but James is saying it's sinful to know you should help someone and not do it. You know, I think about this guy, this guy that helps out that would have been considered a... Uh, I guess kind of a racial, they were called dogs because they were a mix, a mixed breed is how they were described by their enemies. 
course, God wouldn't view them as that, and we would not. But that's how their enemies would describe them, and he's the one that helps. Well, who doesn't help? The two religious guys. They pass right on by. And so James, almost calling them out, calling anybody out with that mentality, if you know you should help, if you know you could do something and you don't, that's wrong. And so when we get into chapter 5, we're going to see a group of people who know what's right, and they're just not doing it. So that's why it's so important to lead from chapter 4 into chapter 5. So look with me at verses 1 through 6. In verses 1 through 6, James, God through James, of course, is going to address these people who know what's right and aren't doing it. And then in verses 7 through 11, which we won't look at tonight, I think you'll look at next week, James and God are going to give a message to the people that are being abused, that are being abused. Could you imagine if you were being mistreated? If God would just pull back the heavens for a minute and say, come here, time out, let me, let me give you a little message of hope. Don't worry about that situation. I've got it. You need to be patient. I'm not going to get it right now, but I'm going to get it. And they're going to get what, what is coming to them. How good would that feel? Could you get through any situation if God would do that? Well, that's what God does for the people in verses 7 through 11 that you'll look at next week. But in verses 1 through 6, God's talking to the abusers, the people that need to be woken up and, and reprimanded. So look at verses 1 through 6. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So I want to give a word of caution. As we read this, that is very strong language. And that's the strongest language I think James uses in the entire book. My natural inclination when I read this is to say, well, I'm not rich. That doesn't apply to me. I don't own a business where I employ hundreds of people and they're counting on me for their paycheck and for their daily bread. So you can say whatever you want to the rich people. That's fine because I'm not one of them. But what I want to caution us against is this. It's easy for us to take a passage like this and say, he's not talking about me. And then we can tune out whatever the message is if we think it doesn't apply to us. There are parts of this that talk about taking advantage of people maybe in a way that we cannot in our situation. And we might quickly say to those parts, that's not me. And we're having a hard time imagining it applying to us because it's such strong language. But I want us to be careful, extra careful, and show caution to make sure he's not talking about us. And we'll look at some ways that that maybe it could be. All right, verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3, James predicts the judgment of God that is going to come against the rich people that have been oppressing the poor. So James says, oh, you think you got away with it. You think God hasn't noticed. God has noticed. And judgment is coming to you. He says that they will cry, they'll scream, they'll be miserable as a result of what they are doing to the poor. And their misery is going to come from the same riches that they're putting so much trust in, so much faith in. Remember, what was going on politically at this time? Well, the rich were killing the poor if they didn't pay their bills. In the courts of the day, and you see this talked about in chapters 2 and 3 a little bit, a poor person could not take a rich person to court. The courts wouldn't listen. 
they would say, look, you're poor. They're rich. They're right. You're wrong. You just want to make some money off of them. You can't, even, you, you can't even have your day in court. But the rich could drag the poor into court like that. And so that's the background of what's going on right now. And sometimes the rich cheated the poor because they had no help in court. The government didn't care. The religious officials were getting paid, so they didn't care. So you know who cared? Fellow Christians and God, and that's it. And if God is not actively involved in the situation, you might feel like no one cares. And so what God is telling these people is, yeah, you're getting away with it, but not from me, not from because of it. So James is saying you're going to be judged. And you know what? A few years after this was written, they were. You remember that Jerusalem was raided and destroyed in A.D. 70? And these government officials, some of the Jewish leaders, and a lot of people in the court system were killed. And everything that they had was destroyed. So James told them, you think you've gotten away with it, but you haven't gotten away with it. God is going to make this right. And God did. Look at the idea of garments. Think about this, because most people only had one garment back then. And parts of the world are still like that. I I lived in China for a little while, very briefly, but I lived there for a little while. And even in the affluent city that I was in, on a college campus, there were several students who had basically three changes of clothes. They had like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday clothes, and then they would repeat. And Monday, all of Monday's activities were done in Monday's clothes. So if they got up and played basketball, Monday's clothes, went to class in Monday's clothes, went to work in Monday's clothes, went on a date in Monday's clothes, that was Monday's clothes, and that's what they did. They didn't have multiple changes of clothes. And that's within just the past few years. So parts of the world are still like this. So he says, your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corrupted. You know, it's hard for a moth to eat something while you're wearing it. You ever notice that? You ever had a moth try to eat, eat the armor of your T-shirt off while you're wearing it? No, that doesn't happen. That happens when we put it in a closet and we don't use it and we ignore it for a long time. You know, any of you that do yard work, you ever left something out in the yard and had it rust? Well, yeah, it's because you left it out and let the elements get to it. Have you ever had that same mower rust while you were using it? That's, that's not how it works. Moths don't eat things that you're wearing. They don't, rust doesn't corrupt stuff that you're using. But it messes up stuff that's put away, that's sitting up, that's not being used. And so what God is saying is to these people, look, you have got so much, you can't even wear it. You can't even use it. It's being put up and being corrupted. And the people that you should be paying, that they rightfully deserve the money that you owe them, you're not giving it to them. And you've got so much that you can't even use it all. And that doesn't make God happy. In Romans chapter 13 and verse 8, it says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And I'm getting a little carried away and forgetting to hit my slide, so we'll just try to catch up every once in a while, as I remember to. Uh, But this verse, you might read it and at first say, Owe no man anything. Does that mean I can't take out a loan? I mean, that might jump out at me as I first read it, and, and when I first read it, it did. But then you look through the Bible and you see God is, is well, is very in favor of loans and, and condones them and encourages them at several times. But what this verse is, is not saying, it's not saying don't take out a mortgage, don't have a credit card, don't ask somebody to borrow some money. But it's saying you don't be the kind of person that walks around owing somebody money and not taking care of it. You've got an obligation out there and you're not, you could, but you have no interest in it. You know, you ever known somebody that they owe you, let's say they owe you $500 and they're not paying you. But the real problem is they're also not giving you $20 or $10. Could you give me a dollar? Could I get 50 cents of what you owe me? Well, the problem is not the $500. The problem is the desire to pay any of it back and to meet that obligation. And so that's what 
Paul is talking about in Romans and kind of what James is talking about as well. Here's the idea. You don't walk around owing a debt to someone because if you're not paying them back, that's in direct opposition to loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what Paul's saying in Romans. That's what James is saying here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. In verses 1 through 3, he also says this will be evidence against you. You know, a modern example might be like someone who gets money in a corrupt way, in a dishonest way, and they're, they're putting it in their 401k, they're investing all this money, and they are thinking, look, when I retire, I'm going to be sitting fat, I'm going to be sitting pretty, everything's going to be roses, but then they get to the end of their career, and something happens with the stock market. It crashes, they lose their mutual, their 401k, maybe the, whatever they had invested in goes belly up, and those same things they'd been putting so much trust in are now screaming witnesses against them. And so James is saying, you're storing up all this stuff, me, 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 mine, 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 while the people you owe money go poor and hungry. Well, one day soon, those riches that you put so much faith in are going to cry out and scream out as witnesses against you. Look at verses 4 through 6. And this gets to the heart of what James is talking about here. He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. So in these verses, James tells us the sins that these people have committed. What's so bad that these people have done? Well, James tells us here. So there are four things that James mentions that these rich people have done that are so bad. First thing he says is, you have kept the wages of the laborers who mowed your field. So day laborers back then usually lived paycheck to paycheck. You know anybody that's like that? Now, we might be like that sometimes from time to time ourselves, but that check doesn't come through on Friday and they say it's going to be Monday, we're in trouble. Somebody with payroll was out sick and it's going to be a few more days till we get paid, we're in a tight spot. And we might start thinking, man, I hope I got some room on my credit card so I can get gas to go home. Well, even more in their economy back in the day, they lived paycheck to paycheck. So what's going to happen to somebody if I have an employee who's living paycheck to paycheck and they come at the end of the day and they said, hey, I worked on your field, I'm ready to get paid. And I say, well, I don't know if I can pay you today. I might have to pay you tomorrow. Will that be all right? Well, day one, you might say, we're going to have to tighten the belt, but what can I do? You've got all the power and the authority. You're in, you're in the power here. Okay, I guess so. I'll come back and work tomorrow. End of the day tomorrow, well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pay you. We've got somebody living paycheck to paycheck, depending on us to feed their family. We're not paying them for the work that they've done. Can you see how that might upset God if somebody was living like that? You know, God cares about injustice in this world. He does. He cares about people that are being mistreated. Number two, he says, you've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You know, you're keeping people from what you owe them, and while they're starving to death, you've got more than enough. You've got so many clothes, you can't wear them all. Moths are eating them. You've got so much stuff, rust is taking it over before you can use it. You've got so much food, you have to throw it away at the end of the day. And you've got people that you owe money, they did what they said they would, and you won't pay them. And they can't eat. That's a messed up situation. You're living in luxury while people are going without. You know, I think sometimes when we talk about the rich, we make a mistake. And we talk about, like, they're the worst people in the world, and money's awful. But then we don't want to give any away, so it must not be that bad. You know, there's nothing wrong with, with being rich. I don't want us to ever maybe put that message out. 
that, that rich people are, are in the wrong or that we don't like money or want money or want things. I don't think God forbids us to use pleasure or to have nice things or to have money. But here's the key, and James talks to this. It's wrong to live like we lived for nothing else. It's wrong for us to have while others go without. Especially while others suffer and die around us. Number three. He says, you have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Anybody in here that grew up on a farm or did much farming? Yeah, a couple of us. All right, so I grew up not, not on a huge farm. Like, I feel like it's, I did enough that if someone asked if I did, I could say yes and say no and be telling the truth. So it was like that middle area. Well, one time, we got a bunch of chickens before the summer was ready. Uh, before the summer came, we were going to freeze them. And so they came to us in the live, full adult version. And so our job was to wring their neck, chop their head off, take the feathers off, clean them, put them in the freezer, which was both a great experience that I've learned a lot from and something I hope I never, ever, ever, ever have to do again. But on that day, I knew what it was like to have 20 chickens and to go through and to kill them, to clean them, and to put them up so we could have stuff to eat for the summer. That was, that was a day of slaughter at my house. You know, in a day of slaughter back in the biblical times, there were a lot of things that happened and a lot of things at play, you know. We don't have to, to have that day anymore uh, where we do that per se on our own. We have refrigerators, we have freezers, we have restaurants that we can go to and grocery stores. But you remember, they lived in a different time. And in the day of slaughter, you know what? You ate like a king because that was the freshest it was ever going to be. You didn't have a deep freezer to put it into. Uh, you didn't have any of the kind of nice things that we have. And so in a day of slaughter, sometimes you would just you would eat all you could because some of it was going to go bad. And you might as well stuff yourself and really kind of have a celebration. And so Jesus, God through James, is saying, you guys are eating every day like it's a feast day. Like it's a day of slaughter. Like you just killed everything and you got all this leftover food. And while you're acting that way, you got these guys that you owe money and they're starving to death. And then number four, he says, you've condemned and you've murdered the righteous person. And you'll remember, this is not hyperbole. This is not, my clicker's ringing. I'm getting a call on it. That's interesting. <laughs> that was pretty cool. That was the first. That was neat. Um, but James is saying to these people, not something that's hyperbole, not like you hate your brother, you're a murderer, not like the metaphorical way, but you'll remember, they were actually being killed. If they were on a land and the government took it, or if they had land and they were taxed so much that they had to basically become tenant workers on that, they were literally being taxed to death. The rich were not giving them the day-to-day -day paycheck they were needing. And imagine if someone is depending on you for a check and you don't feed them, you've as well as killed them yourself because they, don't, they can't eat. They can't provide for their family. And now they have nothing else to do because you've held back from them. And then if you were to be short on something, they would just send a mob out and a hit squad and kill you. So this isn't hyperbole. James is telling these people, you've literally killed good people who've done nothing wrong because of your laziness, because of your greed, because of your evilness. Now the picture is these sinful rich people that are being fattened themselves for the day of slaughter. You know, I imagine some animals, especially if it's like on a small farm, you feed this thing good, you're trying to fatten it up, and that animal starts to think, all right, all right, huh? I'm in the family. They like me. They're giving me all the good food. Little do they know, you're fattening them up for a day of slaughter. And so that's what God says to these people. You, you think you're sitting pretty. You think you're getting fat and rich. I'm fattening you up for the day of slaughter. And that's what God tells them. And this kind of led me to, to think about this. Have you ever thought about in the midst of all the craziness that goes in the world, 
in our particular time in history to be as rich as we are. Have you ever thought about why God gives us material blessings? Why does God give us stuff? Now, there are probably a lot of reasons. Some of y'all are much, probably all of you, much smarter than me, and you could probably think of a list of reasons. But here are three that I've thought of, reasons God might give us material blessings. The first is, just as a gift. Just as a gift. Ecclesiastes 5.19 says, Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth, and hath given him power to eat thereof, and to take his portion, and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. You remember earlier in James chapter 1 and verse 17, he says, Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from who? From God. You think about the big things we have, like salvation, the church, our health, but even the little things. You know, you think about your favorite color. We all probably have a favorite color. You have a favorite food, a favorite scent, a favorite season of the year. You ever think about that comes from God? Your favorite color. That's just a gift from God to you. One reason I think God gives us blessings is that's just the kind of God that He is. You know, I don't necessarily always need a reason to get a gift, to spend some quality time to play with my kids. I just love them. And I give them gifts. Just That's a blessing that comes with being in my house, with wearing my name, with having my blood coursing through your veins. And I just give because I love them. And so it is with God. One reason He blesses us is just that's, that's the kind of God He is. Number two... I think God blesses us so that we will rely on Him as the source of blessings and not just the blessings themselves. Look at Luke chapter 12 sometime, verses 22 through 31. God says, don't get so worried about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, where you're going to live. God takes care of birds. He takes care of flowers. God's going to take care of you. You remember Abraham. He marches from chapter 22 of Genesis all the way through chapter 22. And this promised child, what does God do in 22? He says, sacrifice him, give him to me, kill him. Abraham's test was to trust in the one who gave the blessings even more than he trusted in the blessing. And so it is for us. God gives us blessings, I think, in part so that we will rely on him as the source of them and not just on what we've been given. And then finally, I think so that we will use them to make more and to bless others. And we don't have time to, to look at it, but if you look at Matthew chapter 25... Jesus talks a lot about the one pulling and plucking up who didn't scatter. You know, you think about eating from an apple tree today. You didn't plant that apple tree more than likely. Someone else did. And we are a recipient of the blessings of the generations that have come before us. And so God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 48, the message, a version, a translation says this, Great gifts mean great responsibility. Greater gifts greater responsibility. So we are blessed to bless others. God gives us blessings and gifts so that we can honor Him and do good with them. But if we hoard them up like James's people were doing, if we keep them and it's just for me and mine and I make my house perfect but then I shut the door and no one's welcome in it, mine is mine, you get yours, I'll take care of myself. If we do that, we show we don't trust God to keep blessing us in the future and that we don't maybe care about the people that are around us. And then James is done talking to the sinners. It's enough. He's prophesied. It's going to happen. They're going to be punished unless they repent, unless they make it right. And then in verses 7 through 11, he talks to the saints. He takes the time out. He says, stop. You're going to be okay. I'm going to make this right in my time. And you'll learn about that next week. And do we take a